time of Easter, but in the summertime. And I would say, why not too? Because the way that Paul presents this is that this is the foundational issue of our Christian faith, and I'm just simply here to encourage you with some things that I found. Uh, now, I want to begin with sharing a little bit of my testimony. I was very encouraged by, uh, by John's message last week and how he encouraged everybody to share testimonies. Uh, but I wanted to kind of get a little deeper with my testimony and, and share with you some things that happened to me that really formed who I am in, in, in the ministry that I have, largely even with the ministry that I have with the young people at Maranatha. But when I was born on April 23rd, 1974, I came out weighing three pounds. And in 1974, they didn't have all of the, the, the medical areas and, and expertise that they have now. And they really thought that I was going to die with, within a few hours of my birth. They were preparing my parents for my death. Now, I stand here before you as a, as a healthy full-grown man, 233 pounds. So obviously, God did something miraculous, I believe, in my life to sustain me through that difficult birth. But then they also, as they realized that I was going to live, they prepared my parents for something not worse than death, but just something to be prepared for. Because with all the oxygen and treatments that I, I needed to, to get through a difficult birth, they wanted to prepare my parents for the possibility that I would be blind. And if not blind, that I would have severe motor dysfunction and an inability to, to tell the mind and the body how to work together. So to have been able to succeed and play four years of college baseball, where you need a lot of good hand-eye coordination, is again a testimony to what God has done in my life. But I accepted Christ when I was 10 years old. And I remember because I was so sick as a child, I would go to church with my, with my grandparents when my parents would, were going through a time where they were staying home. And, and I remember singing the hymns with my, uh, with, my, with my grandparents, and that's why I love the way you opened up today. I mentioned to you the, the, the hymn there that I recognized. Uh, I recognized those songs from my childhood. But I remember even sitting in the back row with my grandfather, and he would teach me some of these songs, and we sang a song called, He Lives. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. And for a young child at 10 years old, that's all I needed. I, I just needed to know that my Savior lives. And if you asked me how I know, I would say, well, isn't it obvious? He, he lives within my heart. And I remember being baptized at 10 years old and the next baseball season at 11 thinking I was a superstar because I had the Holy Spirit inside me. I, I thought I was going to get a hit every time or I was going to strike everybody out. Now, that's not reality, but that's what I thought at 10 years old that if I had the power of God in my life, that I could do anything and everything I set my mind to. But as I grew and I matured, I realized that there was more to it than just He lives within my heart. When I was in college, I took a couple courses where all of a sudden it started to become even more real. And when I mean more real, I mean that I was being shown the historical evidence for the proofs of Christianity. And for me, it just validated even more the fact that I knew already that he lived within my heart. And what I realized then is that there is a clear difference between knowing that he lives, which we can know from our experiences with God and Christ and the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and these experiences that we have along the way of answered prayer and amazing trust and things that we're doing through our lives as we grow and we learn with him. But the evidences also helped me to be able to validate and to be able to show other people why this faith that I held so dear was not just something I believed, but what was true. And then it gave me even a stronger foundation for those difficult times in life. 
And so for what I want to do beginning today is start a three-week series dealing with some reasons that really I came across that helped for me to validate the truth of the Christian faith. And some of you may say, well, you're just preaching to the choir because we already believe. But here's the reality that I came across. Yes, I'm sure you believe. We, we do here at the church. But for me, it only strengthened my faith to have reasons to back it up. And not only having a stronger faith, but then even having more courage to go out and share with people about why I believe what I believe. And now I believe that I don't just have a faith of I know he lives because he lives within my heart, which is true, but I also believe that I have a faith that is unshakable. I've been through some difficult times in my life. And through the difficulties, if it's all based on emotion and feelings and he lives within my heart only, that could become very shakable during difficult times. And I want to provide for you some reasons why I believe this faith that we share is unshakable truth. As I said, there's a difference between knowing and showing. And one of the things that I appreciate about the Christian worldview and the Christian religion that I believe stands up against a lot of other worldviews and religions is that Christianity invites investigation. And from the very beginning, it invited and welcomed investigators. I see John 20, 25 through 29, Jesus' encounter with doubting Thomas. And Thomas hears about the resurrection of Jesus, and he says, but unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, That would be kind of cool to see happen. He says, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put your hand into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said and recognized, my Lord, my God. Then Jesus told him, and this is foundational for me, because you have seen me, you have believed. That's great for Thomas, isn't it? Because he got to see and touch and feel and experience and then take that step of belief. But what about you and I? What about you and I who who don't have the opportunity to investigate the wound in Jesus' hand? To investigate the wound in his side or the, 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 the crown of thorn marks that would have been left behind? To really be able to touch and see. What about us? Well, Jesus has a message. He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And I believe that that extends all the way to you and I today. Now, some are going to say, well, I I have seen. Certainly we have. But we haven't had the opportunity and the vantage point that the early disciples had to be able to investigate and touch and experience the physical resurrected body of Jesus. And for those of you who haven't seen and touched, he says, blessed are you. And that's a great encouragement. Now, the reason why I believe this is so important is because Paul Paul really laid the resurrection of of Jesus Christ as an either-or, true-or-false statement that would ground the truth of the religious faith. And I mentioned this last time I was here when I spoke on the resurrection in, in 1 Corinthians 15, and I said the resurrection was the foundation of our hope, and, and I believe that it is. And when we lose a loved one like uh, like, like Norm passed away and we were here a few weeks ago celebrating his life, we're reminded of the truth that absent from the body is present with the Lord. And I believe that Paul was teaching the same type of thing. Look at the way that he puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. But, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead... How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And just like today, there were people going around during that time saying, there's no resurrection of the dead. It didn't didn't happen. But then he goes on, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And I take that sentence very, very seriously. 
Because if I'm going to stand up here and, and preach with you, and I'm going to go to school and, and teach young people the truths of the Christian faith, I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to waste my, my voice or my energy. I, I believe wholeheartedly that the resurrection is historical fact and that my preaching and my teaching is not in vain or not useless. More than that, he says, we are then to be false witnesses about God, for we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And I don't want to be viewed as a false witness. So the truth of the resurrection is foundational to me and my life and what I do and how I live. He goes on, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Fallen asleep in Christ are lost. I believe that would be a metaphor for those who have died. Yet if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than most people. Wow. And there is a truth to this message in, in, in 1 Corinthians. And I believe that Paul is saying that this is very important for our Christian faith. He says it back then, but it extends all the way to the very present right now. This is the foundation of our hope. I also want to suggest that when we do have dialogue with people about this, that there really are two very important things that we have to tell people. Number one is that the gospel is true. And number two, it makes sense to believe it. Now, for some of us, it may be the go-to to, to, to kind of take the counseling approach. You know, that God will work this out for you or that God's going to provide for you. Now, I believe in God's provision and I believe that God works all things out for the good of those who love Him or are called according to the purpose. But I believe that the God working things out for those who believe and God meeting our needs and those kinds of things are, are really ultimately secondary byproducts of the reality of the resurrection. Because if the resurrection occurs, then I can have hope that God is in the process of working things out. If the resurrection occurred, then I can have hope that those who have passed away that were in Christ, like my grandparents, are with him, and I being in Christ will one day be with him and with them. And that's the foundation of my hope. And this is not a subjective, uh, emotional feeling. This is based on an objective truth. Either the resurrection occurred or it did not. And, and I strongly believe that this also then does have the practicality on how we go about grieving when we lose a loved one. When I lost my grandparents, sincerely I grieved. I grieve with those who lose loved ones. I grieve with the church when, when you've lost Norm, and I grieve with Connie, and I understand a, a little bit of, of what she's going through, although as I shared before, I'm not going to claim to understand everything. But I'm going to come alongside and, and, and grieve along with. But the Bible's clear. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, that we don't grieve like those who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those uh, who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who what? Who have no hope. And that's the key. The resurrection is the foundation for my hope. It's objective because it's either or. Either it happened or it did not. It's not a subjective feeling. Well, I think it happened or I like it or I appreciate it. Or it's either or. And if it occurred, and I believe there's good reasons to believe that it did, then we have a good foundation for our hope. And that doesn't mean we don't grieve. I, I grieve with the best of them. Trust me. But I don't grieve in the same way as someone who has no hope. See, for someone who has no hope, death would be final. For the atheists, there's nothing to look forward to. But for the Christian, death is just a process for which we look forward to something even greater. And if the resurrection is true, then you see that Jesus demonstrated that, that death was not the end because he returns three days later and gives us an amazing story, an amazing testimony to share.
And when we share that testimony and we share what happened to Jesus and we want to demonstrate for people that the resurrection actually is true, there's some certain things that I believe we need to do when we approach people. And the first one is to cover the encounter with prayer. If I have a a discussion with somebody, the first thing I want to do is start with prayer. Before I start any of my classes, I start with a word of prayer. Uh, Luke 6 27 through 28 says, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And what? Pray for those who mistreat you. Now, I'm not saying that everybody I disagree with is my enemy. Some of the non-believers out there in the world have been really good friends of mine. And I hope to continue to develop a close relationship with them and a friendship with them so that I can be a better example, that they can draw closer to me and see the truth of Christ revealed in me. That's, that's my hope. But I start with prayer. Second, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit gives me the ability to confront when needed or to present when needed. It's been said that public speaking is one of the greatest fears of humanity, even above death, which means if that's true, that when you go to a funeral, you would rather be the person in the casket than the one giving the eulogy. There, there may be some truth to that for some people. And, and I don't know at what avenue you're going to have an opportunity to share and discuss, but for some of you, it, it just freaks you out to no end to, to share with one person about Christ. For others, it would be terrifying to stand up in front of a group of this many. And I, I don't know what fears or anxieties or whatnot you have in talking to people about Christ. It might be very easy to talk to somebody about how the Dodgers are doing this summer. It might be very difficult to share with somebody about your relationship and experience with Christ. But when that time comes, I pray that you would start with prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to give you the power to be able to speak the words. And sometimes you find them coming out so naturally, don't even understand where they're coming from. But when you know Christ, you do understand where they're coming from. And then third, not to be ashamed. There's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to be ashamed of when it comes to the truth of the gospel message. And I recognize in our society, it's not the most popular thing to make stands on Christ and to say that Jesus is the only way and to say that Jesus is the truth. These are very unpopular claims. But I'm not so concerned about popularity or what feels good if something is true. I certainly wouldn't want to go to a doctor and find out that I had cancer. That would be a really bad thing to hear. But I'll tell you what, if I actually really did have cancer, I would want to know sooner than later so that I could get on the right treatments and try to fix this problem. I wouldn't want somebody to to, to lie to me and say, oh, you're healthy, you're healthy, you're healthy, you're healthy, and several months go by and then tell me the truth. No, you're really sick. I would want to know that I was sick from the very beginning. In some ways, sin is like a disease and a sickness that, that, that infects all of us. And we need to speak the truth that it's a critical, eternal disease. And it affects our eternal destination. So it's not something to be ashamed of. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because of the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And that's the good news. Continuing, as I said, Paul makes the resurrection of first importance. It's his major priority when he's writing 1 Corinthians. say, well, how do you know? Because he says it. Now, there are some other things in the first 14 chapters that he addresses to the Corinthian church. But when you get to 1 Corinthians 15, in the middle of his letter, He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now, what's so important that you have to share with me? That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That He appeared to Cephas, that would be Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, 
And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believe. So what's so important? Well, Christ died, he was buried, and then he raised on the third day. And the resurrection on the third day is of extreme importance for reasons we've already talked about. And what I want to share with you are five reasons why I believe the resurrection is a historical fact. And I hope for you that this will encourage you as well because we've already discussed some reasons why the resurrection is of central importance. But what are some good reasons to share with people that the resurrection is a historical fact and not just a subjective emotional feeling or something we just believe? On what grounds could we say that this is a historical fact? Well, number one, there seems to be, through church history, a major transformation in the lives of the disciples. And, and for me, that's validated in, in the Gospels. It's, it's validated in, in the writings of Paul. It, it's strongly validated, though, in the writings of church history. And so what do we have? We have an interesting scenario. We have a guy like Peter, who, when, when Jesus is almost about to die, he goes around and denies Christ three times, claiming, I, I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know him. I wasn't with him. And yet this Peter would be someone who, after the crucifixion, was willing to not die the way that his Savior died and actually requested to be crucified upside down. Why the transformation? Why, why the boldness? At least from John 19, 25 through 27, it seems that we only have a few women at the, uh, at, at the foot of the cross when Jesus is, is, is on the cross. It says that his mother and mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene, uh, the only male disciple that we have listed there that we even suggest was possibly there was John, and it doesn't even mention him by name. It just says the, the beloved disciple. And we assume that that's John because the beloved is mentioned of John in other places. So that's what you have. Of, of the 12 who followed you, now we understand Judas is kind of out because he, he, he denies Christ. And, but out of the 11 that were left, there's only one mentioned by name at the foot of the cross. And we ask the question, then where did they all go? Why are they not mentioned in a line of, of, of being nearest to Jesus when he needed them most? And many have suggested that it's because they were scared themselves that they would meet the same fate of Jesus. That if their leader was going to be crucified, any association in a positive way with that leader would lead to your own crucifixion. And unless they had some reason to really, truly support him, it seems that they kind of go the other way. They run away out of, out of fear. But there's no doubt that the crucifixion takes place, and then within three days, the, the message of the resurrection starts to spread like wildfire. wildfire. I mean, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, we've already mentioned that Paul says that he died and was buried and raised on the third day. This seems to be a part of an oral tradition because 1 Corinthians would have been written before the Gospels were completed. So somewhere this message is getting around and Paul's writing it as something that, that, uh, that he's experienced and heard. Uh, but the Bible says that for 40 days after the... The, the, the resurrection takes place for 40 more days. Jesus is on the earth doing amazing things in order to validate for the people that he actually resurrected from the dead. And these are just a few. In Acts 1.3, it says he gave many convincing proofs over 40 days. It doesn't even say what they were. It just says he gave many. In John 20, 10 through 18, he appears to Mary Magdalene. In 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 8, which we've read, he appears to Peter, he appears to 
the 12. He appears to more than 500 at the same time. He appears to James. He appears to Paul. He's appearing to people in individual places. He's appearing to individuals. And other times, he's appearing to people in the masses, like 500 people at the same time. And that's interesting. He appears to doubting Thomas in a way that Thomas can actually investigate and draw the conclusions that this really was. You've got, in doubting Thomas, you've got someone who didn't believe what he heard and didn't come to belief until he examined and touched and experienced. And that seems to be of importance. In John 21, 12, Jesus is demonstrating his physical resurrection by eating with his disciples. And they didn't even recognize who he was. And then he sits and eats with them. And when he's eating, then they start to recognize. John 20, 30, the book of John ends with saying that Jesus did many other miraculous signs so that you may believe, but he did so many things that you can't even fill them up in a book. In other words, the Gospels do record some of the things that Jesus did, enough to, to give us some validation that the resurrection occurred, but there are many, many more things that he did that weren't even recorded in, in writing, and that's significant. I think it's also significant to note how the disciples die. Because nobody's going to lay their life down voluntarily in a way that's torturous if there's not some purpose and validation behind it. I came across a book about that thick called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's really interesting. And, and it chronicles some of the ways that the early disciples die, and then it goes through some of the persecution of the church through a good portion of, uh, of church history. And I'm just going to read a list of, of, of how some of these guys died because it's just fascinating to me. We've already mentioned that Peter, uh, who denied Jesus three times at one point, was crucified but, but requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified in the same way as his, uh, as his Savior. Uh, but Jude, who was the brother or half-brother of Jesus, uh, and a one-time skeptic before the crucifixion, was crucified. Thomas, who actually had that vantage point and validated through the investigation, was stabbed with a spear. Luke was hanged, and tradition says he, he was beheaded, and the head went in one direction, and the body went in another direction, and were, were, were settled in two different locations. Uh, Simon the Zealot was crucified in 70 A.D., James, the half-brother of Jesus, a one-time skeptic, was beaten in stone at the age of 94. Can you imagine? No respect for the elderly there. Matthias, the, the, the disciple who replaced Judas, was stoned and beheaded. Uh, Mark was dragged to pieces in front of the false god worship of Serpius. Would be the modern-day version of tying somebody up at the back of a 4 by 4 and driving down the freeway until they die. You're dragging him around the streets, and you, and you don't stop until he's dead. Stephen was the first recorded Christian martyr in the New Testament, Acts 7.60. And Saul, who later became Paul, was kind of there overseeing some stuff and kind of gave the head nod to, uh, to, to, to Peter's stoning there, or, or Stephen's stoning there. Uh, James, the son of Zebedee, was killed by Herod. Don't know a lot about his death. Uh, Philip was scourged and crucified and stoned. Could you imagine scourge, that's whipping, and crucified, but that's not enough. We're going to crucify you and throw stones at you. There was a lot of anger and, and, and hatred here towards these disciples and what they believed. Matthew had a, a spear thrust through him. Andrew, the brother of Peter, was crucified. Paul, tradition tells us, was beheaded by Nero. And John, the apostle John, was the only one that we know of of those 11 that were still left that lived a long life and died of natural causes. But it doesn't stop there because the disciples of the disciples faced some horrible deaths. And Clement of Rome, who was the bishop of the Church of Rome from 90 to 99 AD, and he's also mentioned in Philippians 4.3, had an anchor tied around his neck and was thrown into the sea under Emperor Trajan. Ignatius of Antioch was thrown into a pit of lions. I'm sure they had no problem enjoying watching him be torn apart by the lions. Uh, Polycarp. I love what he says at the end. I did a, a church history report on Polycarp, and I, and I love this. He's 86 years old, and his testimony is this. 
as, he, as he's being threatened by the government to give up his life for Christ. And they're saying to apostatize, and they're asking him three different times. They give him three chances. And he says this, 86 years I have served Christ, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saves me? It's a powerful quote. 86 years. He's not going to blaspheme or apostatize because he believes sincerely that these things are true. The other thing that I would say is not just how they died, but the transformation of two interesting characters in the Bible. One is Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul. Now, apart from what it tells us in Acts 9, 4 through 17, where Paul actually has an encounter with the risen Christ and he's able to see Christ for who he is and he believes based on that experience, there's really no alternate explanation for how Saul, this persecutor of Christians, becomes Paul, one of the greatest missionaries of all time. We don't have another explanation. And so the critics of Christianity, they recognize that Saul became Paul and that Saul wrote many of those letters that he wrote, and yet they don't have an alternate explanation other than he experienced Jesus on the road to Damascus. And yet that would entail that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Also, James is an interesting character because in John 7, 5, it tells us that even his own brothers did not believe in him during his earthly ministry. They were skeptics. And James was a half-brother of, of Jesus. And so he goes through his life not believing, but yet after the crucifixion, James is a leader of the Jerusalem church. So we have to account for how James becomes a Christian and such a strong Christian to become a leader in the church if he doesn't do what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and that is have an encounter with the resurrected Christ. You see, I think encountering the resurrected Christ uh, would change a lot of minds. If you're a skeptic and a doubter and Jesus appears right in front of you and you're able to touch him and experience him and see him, there's not going to be a doubt in your mind. And that's going to change your attitude from willing to be, uh, to, to be able to deny him three times to, to being able to, to die upside down, crucified, or to be someone who maybe mocked him at one time like, like Saul did, uh, to being somebody who was willing to go anywhere and endure anything for the cause of spreading the gospel message. And there really is no alternative account to these uh, disciples changing their, their, their lives so strongly and so quickly. And so I believe the transformation of lives of disciples is a very good reason to believe that the resurrection actually occurred. The second one is that it's recorded in all four gospels. And so we would have to then establish that there's some reliability to the gospel accounts. If the gospels are reliable, then we can trust what they say. Now, some people, and I, I encounter a lot of students at school, who they're, they're willing to accept the truth of some documents, but when it comes to the Bible, they're, they're not going to believe it. They're, they have no problem going and learning history from their history class, but then walking across to my class, to the Bible class, and then just questioning everything. And they don't question what's being taught as far as accuracy in history. They just believe it. But because the Bible has some interesting stories in it and some interesting conclusions and might even require you to devote your life fully to Christ, they don't want to do this, so then they want to make up excuses. But I found that there's some really good reasons to believe the reliability and the accuracy of the Bible. And so I, I put the Bible to a couple of tests. And the first test is the bibliographical test. And the reason why this is important, although this is going to sound a little bit scholarly for a moment, but I'm going to explain why this is important, is because this is the test that you can challenge the secular people with to check for bias. And I love this. Because the secular world is all about saying, you need to be unbiased. You need to be open-minded. You need to be willing to go where the evidence leads. Well, okay, I'm going to show you that I'm not being biased with what's called the bibliographical test. So you ask secular scholars, how do they determine whether a document is accurate from antiquity, from history, from B.C. and early A.D. times? How are you going to tell when you're studying Plato or 
Socrates or, or any of the, these great uh, philosophers? How are you going to know whether the writings that we have is accurate to what they actually wrote? How, how do we know that what Plato wrote wasn't just uh, doctored by his scribes and now it's no accuracy between what Plato wrote and what we have? Because that seems to be the claim with the Bible. We, we have the Bible today, but how do we know that it was what people wrote and what they experienced? But there's two tests. One of them is the number of manuscripts that you have. How many manuscripts do we have in the New Testament? It's fascinating. We have about 5,700 of the Greek manuscripts, about 8,000 copies of the Latin, 350 of the Syriac, but here's what is even more fascinating to me. There's about 32,000 citations of Scripture in the writings of the early church fathers. Because when they wrote a sermon like I'm presenting to you, they would handwrite the Scriptures word for word in their sermons that they were presenting. So from the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century, you have the whole Bible preserved in the writings of the early church fathers. So you've got 5,000 Greek manuscripts, you've got Latin Vulgate, you've got Syriac texts, plus you've got all these writings of the early church fathers to compare one to another. And when you do, from early to late, you find astonishing similarity in message in Scripture and what's being right. In, in, in other words, I don't have an early Matthew that's different from a 4th century sermon Matthew. I have something that's extremely, extremely similar that's incredible. Near identical. And that's what's fascinating. Okay? That the message is not lost over the periods of time. That's what's great. But then another one is to, to check for time. What is the time gap between... The, uh, the, the, the first copies that we have, because we don't have any original copies, of, original writings of Scripture. All we have is copies of copies of copies. Got about 5,000 copies. This is a lot of copies. But we don't have the originals. Okay? And for some people, that bothers them. But what we want to do if we don't have the originals is to look at the, the time gap from the time that the event would have occurred to the first copies that we have and how much time arises. Well, when we come to the Bible, there is what most scholars would agree would be one of the earliest manuscripts that was documented and discovered. It was discovered in Egypt, and it was dated about 125 AD. Now, for some scholars, they date a little bit earlier. Others, they date a little bit later. I think it's interesting what it says, though, because that one little piece is from John 18, 31 through 38, where Pilate is questioning Jesus. And it says right there in the Greek, what is truth? And the, the very last word in that little segment that they have, because it is just a little piece of Scripture, the very last word in that segment is the word no in the sentence, I find no fault with this man. It's interesting that the earliest document that they have, the earliest piece of manuscript, asks the question, what is truth? And it's a segment of Pilate finding no fault in Christ. That, that's significant to me. And what it tells me is that by 125 AD, that the, the gospel had been circulating in Egypt and being copied in Egypt. That's what it tells us. And some people think, well, 125 AD to 33 AD, that's just too much time. That's a lot of time for some to get messed up. And when you think about it, it's really not that much time, and here's why. When we do the math, that's about 92 years. That's still a lifespan of somebody. Um, I, I learned about World War II not from personally experiencing it, but from listening to stories from my grandfather who was there. And I believe that I have accurate information because he experienced it and passed it on to me. And what you have to appreciate is the first century was an oral culture. They were a culture that got things right through oral communication. And it wasn't until the disciples started to get a little bit older that they thought, okay, maybe we ought to write this stuff down. And so it's not surprising to find some time gap between the events of 33 AD and the first copies that we have because there's going to be time gap of oral tradition. And then when you have something pretty, pretty much there, very early dated, that's extremely helpful for us. Now, for those, uh, those that are going to argue that that's too much time, well, let's take a look at something for a moment. 
Because when my students are in their history classes and they're studying the writings of Caesar, they might not realize that there's a thousand-year time gap from the events of Caesar and the first writings that we have. And yet they don't question the accuracy of Caesar. There's also only about 10 copies of what Caesar wrote. You see where we're going with this? I mean, I can go on and on and on. I've got a long list that I'm not going to bore you with, but it's very similar. Because what you're going to find is I'm going to list examples of historians or historical figures who wrote, and we only have a handful of manuscripts of their writing, of copies of their writing, 10, 5, 7, 8, 9. And we have a large time gap of thousands of years. So it, we're talking about demonstrating bias with someone. If they're going to say, well, you can't trust the Bible, then you're also not going to be able to trust Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Caesar, and so on and so forth. And I don't think that there's a history teacher or a history class that wants to start questioning the, <laughs> the, the authenticity of those writers because it's the foundation of what they teach. And so the point that I would make is objectively speaking, open-mindedly speaking, if we're going to be honest, if you throw out the Bible based on manuscript evidence, you're going to have to throw out everything else. People don't want to do that. So the Bible clearly outweighs any other type of evidence that there would be uh, for, for documents as far as manuscript is concerned. In fact, so much so that a British manuscript scholar by the name of Sir Frederick Kenyon wrote, the interval then between the dates of original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be in fact negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that scriptures have been come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. This is not something that was passed on over long, long periods of time and gotten wrong and try to get recorrected over a period of time. This is something that was a consistent story from the very beginning and stayed consistent all the way through. And what was the consistent message? That Jesus resurrected from the dead. That's important. You also have to look at what the Bible says about itself. Uh, the Bible claims to be the Word of God and does so on the authority of eyewitnesses. And this is powerful. In Luke 1, 1 through 4, uh, Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Luke goes and investigates the evidence and interviews some eyewitnesses and draws a conclusion and writes this letter of Luke, this gospel account of Luke, to Theophilus. In 2 Peter 1.16, Peter writes, We did not follow cleverly invented tales when the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And that's an important detail. In Galatians 1.11-12, which most scholars would agree that this is Paul's uh, first letter of writing. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but rather I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Again, going back to that experience on the road to Damascus. And so we have good reasons based on manuscript evidence, based on what the Bible has to say, but there's even more. You see, what I found when I got an opportunity to travel to Israel and Turkey, Greece, and Rome and do some real investigation of the land, that there's some solid archaeological evidence to back up the truth of the Bible. In fact, so much so that I don't even have enough time to get through all of it. I'll just name a few of the highlights for me. But when I was in Israel, I had an opportunity to, to go into this three-mile-long tunnel under the city of Jerusalem called Hezekiah's Tunnel. And, and what I found was that in 2 Chronicles 32.30, it talks about Hezekiah building this tunnel near the Gihon Spring. And that's where I went. I actually walked through this three-mile tunnel. Most of it was dark. We did have flashlights, but occasionally the guys, we turn off the flashlights and we're getting down into the tunnel and holding on to the sides and pitch black dark. And I come out of that tunnel and I'm up to my, up to my chest in water. 
It was a fascinating experience to have walked through Hezekiah's tunnel. Not only have validation that the Bible says way back in the Old Testament that Hezekiah built a tunnel, but just a few years ago to be able to actually walk through it. And it doesn't stop there. The archaeological evidence is, is just fascinating. You go to Jericho, and what do you find? Evidence of rubble. Why? Because the walls of Jericho fell, right? I mean, this is just example after example after example. One of the things that I was most fascinating, fascinated with, though, uh, from, from my experience, was to be able to go to Turkey, Greece, and Rome. And on that trip, we spent a lot of time in Turkey where the seven churches of Revelation are. And I got to study the land of those churches. It was fascinating to me. Uh, and I, I had the scriptures really just, my, my eyes were open to what Revelation is teaching in the documents of those seven letters based on the land. It was just fascinating. And it was an experience that, that I believe just laid a foundation uh, for me, again, as a young person, uh, to, to be able to have studied the land, the archaeology, and have it just validated to me. Because just real quickly, let's compare this, okay? You take the Book of Mormon, for example. There's no maps in the Book of Mormon, but there's maps all over the New and Old Testament. Why? Because there's no evidence for the lands or the people group uh, that the Book of Mormon mentions. It's non-existent. Uh, one of the questions that I ask the Mormons when they come over to my house, we sit there and we talk, and we're sitting there in the living room, we're having a conversation, I get into a little bit of points where, okay, I fail now. We can get a little deeper. I ask them, can you show me where Zarahemla is? And all of a sudden, goes blank. They start making excuses. There's, yes, because there's no such place as Zarahemla. And yet it's mentioned as a key location in the Book of Mormon. And yet we can go through all of the various places that are mentioned in the, in the Bible, and we can go there, we can study there, we can pull out archaeological evidence that David was a real person that really existed and really was a king, and we can go on and on, Old and New Testament. And for me, the more that I have, the more validation that I have that this is a true document. And so we've looked at transformational lives of disciples. We've looked at the reliability of the Bible. Third, I just want to point out, that the presence of the church today is evidence of the resurrection. Because how does the church get started? There's no alternate explanation other than these early Christian followers of Christ experience the resurrection and then it just explodes. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon the people at Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection, it explodes even more. And you've got these explosions of the Christian, uh, Christianity, people coming to Christ by the multitudes, and yet if Jesus doesn't resurrect, this would have been put to an end in the first century, and we wouldn't have shared communion today, and we wouldn't have had an opportunity to even gather because there would have been nothing to gather for, nothing to celebrate on Sunday mornings. And yet, I look at church history and I see a lot of people trying to put an end to Christian faith. Throughout history, I think some of, the, some, some of the, the great persecutors of the church, we go back to Nero, right? Uh, Domitian or Diocletian. There was an edict in 303 AD to, to try to destroy all Bibles. It was against the law to have a Bible. And they put out a government edict in 303 AD to destroy all Bibles. But did it work? Nope. Because we still gather together today and we read our scriptures, don't we? And we continue to have the freedom, and even in places like China where they might not have the freedom to do so, there are underground churches hiding their Bibles to be able to open up the Word of God that they cherish. And that's fascinating. I think of philosophical persecution. Um, I remember it was a, a few months ago I was here, and, and Frank got up and shared that we're having a Bible study on Wednesday nights to talk about naturalistic Darwinianism, right? Darwinian evolution. In Darwinian evolution, naturalism definitely poses a threat to, uh, to, to Christian uh, creationism, I would recognize. But there are a bunch of philosophies that do. I think that this relativism that's really hot in our society right now, it comes in the form of what's true for you is true for you, and what you believe is what you believe, and what I believe is what I believe. And this idea of trying to get everybody to agree seems to bring more division in our society than it brings help. And what we need to do is stand on the truth and the promises of God and recognize that this is an objective truth, not just true for me. 
And I don't go to my classroom and say to the students, this is just true for me, let me share with you something that works for me. I share with them, this is objective truth, and this is why you ought to be a Christian. And I give them some reasons. Now again, I said that Christian faith is not based on evidence. Evidence helps us show, not necessarily know, that the Christian faith is true. And for some of you, you don't need any evidence at all. But for others, a message like this might be strongly encouraging in strengthening your Christian faith to be even that much more bold. But not only some of the, the, the historical, but, but even some of the philosophers and the, and, and, and the historians that are out there. I think of some of the, the, the older philosophers, like Bertrand Russell. Uh, he, he wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian that I actually really enjoyed reading because he actually brought some good arguments to the table. And I bring those arguments to my class and I said, here's what the atheist Bertrand Russell said in the 1920s. Here's his arguments. How are we going to respond to this? At least he brought good arguments. But you read Richard Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, or Christopher Hitchens' God is Not Great, and all you get is an atheist rant. And, And there's clearly a difference between what seems to be a book on anger and a book on, here's a logical argument that I want you to deal with. And, and I think as Christians, we need to respond to both. But at least in the, in the old times, or the 1920s anyways, he was bringing some good arguments, and the Christian church was then forced to engage argument for argument. What we don't want to do is get off on rants, because that's not super helpful. What I find also is one of my favorite, shall I say, anti-Christian authors. Now, I I do have favorite anti-Christian authors. I I do, because I like to know what's out there so I can engage the arguments and bring them to my students because the internet is such that the arguments are in the hands of the students anyways. They know them and and they're being convinced by them. So I want to be a step ahead and to kind of be there to, to help give them some answers to some of these. But one of my favorites, his name is Bart Ehrman. Just listen to some of the titles of these books. Misquoting Jesus, the idea that throughout history uh, the, the, the writers got it wrong and they were just misquoting so there's a bunch of errors in the Bible. Uh, how Jesus became God. He argues that Jesus was not God from the very beginning. He wasn't, he wasn't the second member of the Trinity. But somewhere throughout church history the idea of him becoming God developed and he writes a book on how he thinks that got developed. Um, forged. Well, what do you think that means? Uh, he, he argues that the, uh, that the New Testament was forged. This is a bunch of forgeries. Lost scriptures. He claims that there are many lost scriptures out there that we have to find before we can know the truth. Uh, he writes a book that was uh, very foundational to his own skepticism and, and rejection of Christianity because what's fascinating about Bart Ehrman's testimony is that he was once a Christian who went to Christian school and went to seminary and got a degree and then rejected all of it. And he chronicles his story in a book called God's Problem, How the Bible Fails to Answer Our Most Important Question, Why We Suffer. He doesn't think the Bible answers this problem of evil, the problem of suffering, and so he rejects it. And you can see by all these other titles, he's engaging attacks to try to tear it down. I already mentioned before that there are are, are two odd practices of the church. One of them is the Lord's Supper that we practiced earlier today. That to me, it doesn't make sense if the resurrection doesn't occur. Because if all Jesus does is is leave you a reminder of his death, but it's not very significant if the resurrection doesn't occur, you see. The resurrection ultimately demonstrates the proof that the death of Christ on the cross atoned for our sins. Now, it's possible that Jesus could have atoned for our sins and not resurrected, that that's possible. But he leaves us the resurrection so that we would know that the death of Christ was significant. And then he leaves these elements as a celebration of a remembrance of his death. But I think how odd this is because in the people that, that, that have passed away in my life that were very close to me, I'm sorry, but I don't want to remember the day that they died. There's a picture that was circulating on Facebook that my cousin took of my grandmother on the couch on the day that she died. And, and, and it just bothered me because I don't want to remember my grandmother on the day that she died. I, 
I want to remember her for all the other times. Why not show her on Christmas or some birthday party or something? Show her when she was up and around holding my baby or something, but don't show her on the day that she died. There's also at at my home on the computer, you might have this as well, the pictures of your life that loop. (laughs) You you take a picture on your camera, you put it on on your computer, and then it all loops, right? Well, I was looking at picture of my young kids as they were growing up and watching them kind of grow on, on the uh, computer and my wife was oh remember this remember that and then all of a sudden a picture that my wife took of her father when he was on his deathbed and it was just one of those things that you don't really care to remember the moment or the time or the time of death I'd rather have the picture of my my father-in-law on the day that he had bought uh, my, my child this little bike car that he, had, that he uses and how much fun they were having together in the backyard playing. Those are the pictures that I put up on my wall, not the picture of the man in the casket. And yet by leaving behind the Lord's Supper, in some way Jesus is asking us to remember the man on the cross. In fact, it's ironic that the cross is the symbol of Christianity that we wear as chains around our neck and we put in our, in our homes or in our churches to remember what? Well, ultimately, we remember the death because it's significant. And what validates its significance? But the resurrection. Or how about baptism? Baptism is interesting. And I know that throughout church history, there's been different modes of ways that some people practice baptism. But the way that I've practiced it as a pastor is that I, I get, either get in the water with somebody and hold them like this, and I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and I bring you up. But the idea is that there's immersion to be connected with the death, burial, and resurrection, and then coming out of the water is that new life, that that resurrection. Now, I strongly believe that somebody becomes a Christian by accepting Christ through faith, and that uh, the, the baptism is just a outward symbol of that inward faith. I strongly believe that. But baptism has been, throughout church history, an identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And if there is no resurrection, I'm arguing that Christian baptism and the Lord's Supper are odd practices that just don't really make sense. Uh, And lastly, I'm going to close with this because I've got two more weeks to unfold what's coming next. But number four... Number four is the, is the absence of the, the physical body of Jesus in any tomb. It hasn't ever been discovered, right? There, there, there's never been the body of Jesus found. And if it was in the first century, again, we wouldn't be here today, would we? Because that would have been proof that Jesus did not resurrect. If you've got a dead body, you've got no resurrection. So number four is that there is no dead body discovered. And the earliest testimony has always been an empty tomb. And lastly, number five, is the inadequacy to explain the empty tomb in light of all this evidence. How do you explain it away? And there's never been a satisfactory argument when you consider all of these other evidences. And so, Arthur Conan Doyle, you might be familiar with the uh, Sherlock Holmes books, but my, my wife loves investigations. She watches all the investigation shows, and she tries to figure out who committed the crimes before the end, you know, and, and she reads all of the Sherlock Holmes books, and she loves that kind of stuff. Uh, but Arthur Conan Doyle wrote, once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. Now, there are going to say that people are going to say that the resurrection is highly improbable because it's a miracle. But what we're going to do over the next few weeks is eliminate all of the other suggestions. What are the alternatives? What are people saying? If you don't believe the resurrection, you've got to come up with something. So what have people said throughout the years, and what is the new stuff that people are saying? It just seems like every Easter time, people are coming up with new stuff, right? If it's not a new TV show or something in Time Magazine or a new book being written, something's coming out. But from the very beginning... I'm going to show from 33 AD, from the day that Jesus resurrected from the dead, people started making excuses. And now, over 2,000 years later, people are still making excuses. We're going to just take a look. What are those excuses? So that you hear them and you know them and you're familiar with them, so that if you encounter somebody who's not a Christian and they say, well, I don't believe because, 
hopefully these, uh, the, these areas that we're going to cover over the next two weeks uh, will be areas that, that they are wrestling with and you can help them. You can help guide them and lead them to the truth. But furthermore, the next two weeks are going to lay even a stronger foundation that the gospel is true. And that's the foundation for our hope. Let me close in prayer. Lord, I do thank you for this time. I thank you, Lord, for leaving behind evidence for us to consider in regards to knowing that these things are true. We recognize that there clearly is a difference between knowing and showing, and there are some people in this room that don't need any evidence at all. Because through the power of your Holy Spirit, you revealed to them that you are real, and they have a personal relationship with you. As do I, and as did I when I was 10 years old. I didn't accept this based on evidence. But the more that I gained, the more that I learned, the more that I could appreciate and strengthen my faith, to know that these things are true. And then to be able to share with other people to either encourage them to have a stronger faith or to help demonstrate to people that there are good reasons for believing in the truths of Christianity. So Lord, I, I do pray for safety uh, for those during this uh, holiday week. Lord, we pray for those who are traveling as well, that they would be safe. And we pray, Lord, that until we meet again, that every day we would draw closer in our relationship with you. In your name I pray. Amen.